Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. I almost hate to use the word educational. Charles Staley. Phil Stevens. I guess I'm kind of the, uh, the dark horse here. And Rob Fortress Fortney. But there really is no secret. Thanks for listening. Iron Radio is brought to you in part by www.bingcolorprint.com. Business cards, flyers, banners, postcards, DVD packages, and more can be found there. Occasionally you'll see Phil make a comment on our Iron Radio listeners page. That's not spam. That might be something that you can save at bingcolorprint.com. Thanks. Okay, sweet. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. I am a bodybuilder, and I am a exercise physiology and nutrition professor. Hey, folks. Rob Fortress Fortney here, a journalist, former editor at Muscle Mag International, former competitive bodybuilder and powerlifter. Uh, this is Phil Stevens, strength coach, rider, athlete, and all-around good guy. Cool. Today we have with us, uh, once again, actually, Mike Nelson. Mike plays a little bit of behind-the-scenes here and there on Iron Radio already. I mean, he's always full of recent research tidbits and, and cool stuff. But, um, Mike, how about if you just, uh, you know, introduce yourself briefly. Again, I know you've, you know, been involved in the past, and listeners might know who you are, but just a, a, a quick background of you, you know, athletically and academically. Oh, sure, the quick background is I'm currently finishing up my PhD in exercise physiology at the University of Minnesota, looking at the topic of metabolic flexibility, which we'll get into. And I guess athletically, a little bit closer to Charles, I was always a kid who was extremely non-athletic, so spent most of my life trying to figure out uh, ways to increase that. So for fun, I play volleyball, do a lot of uh, kiteboarding, and I've done some powerlifting needs, tactical strength challenge, things like that. And I'm at, you can find me on the web at extremehumanperformance.com. And I've even got a free report for people. They go to miketnelson.com and then just go backslash, or I should say forward slash iron radio. That'll take you to a page. And I'm actually just putting the finishing touches on it once I get home here. So I'm going to go out tonight and free. So. Check it out. Sweet. Web partnership. I like it. Okay. Uh, well, now, I've always regarded you as sort of a metabolism and nutrition kind of person, too. I mean, my focus on nutrition is more, of course, metabolic. You know, not so much something like food preparation, although that's fun, or agriculture or some you know external aspect of food, but rather something internal. And, again, that's kind of how I look at you, too. Um and that's what I wanted to touch on today's topic because I know you've been studying metabolic inflexibility for a long time, and it's just the kind of thing that I think a lot of listeners would be interested in, especially, you know, we have a, a nice cross-section of people who are strength athletes but also, you know, intellectually curious. So can you just start off by describing metabolic inflexibility for listeners? Sure. Um, so there's inflexibility and then the opposite of that is flexibility. So just like, you know, people should have some – you know, flexibility in their movement, they should also have some flexibility with their metabolism. So at its simplest level, if we drastically simplify the word metabolism, it's in essence, you know, taking food that we eat and converting it into fuel. And there's obviously a bunch of side effects and, you know, different processes involved in that too. But the term metabolic flexibility um, actually came from the work of uh, David Kelly, I almost over probably 10 years ago now at least. And the definition is that you want the body to be able to use carbohydrates very efficiently and you want it to be able to use fats also very efficiently. And those processes can get a little bit mucked up. Um, the initial work was done in diabetics. So we know that diabetics have a very hard time processing carbohydrates in general. So therefore, they're very metabolically in flexible to carbohydrates. There's also other people who are metabolically inflexible to fats also. Right. And, and this is something that's, this is like a a, ge a genetic thing. This is like a some kind of nucleotide polymorphism or something that makes people naturally better or worse at metabolizing one or the other? 
Um, there can be. I mean, the you know the famous study with that is you know the Pima Indians. Um, so there does appear to be different genetic things that can affect it. But for example, even if we just look at diabetes, we know that diabetes affects you know a wide variety of people from various populations. Um, even if you look at some of like the immigrant studies, people who have maybe one genetic background, you know, move. To, for example, the U.S. study done with the people in Okinawa. Okinawa has the highest concentration of centurions, so people who live past 100. They came and moved to the U.S., adopted U.S. lifestyle and eating, and metabolically they kind of became a wreck, unfortunately, like most other people in the U.S. See, now that's a very interesting example. Oh, let me just ask you one thing before I forget, Mike. Uh, now, I've been hearing some stuff uh, on Chris Shugart's blog uh, lately uh, and I don't know who's saying this, uh, a strength coach or somebody, about how we're not carb-adapted, how humans aren't carb-adapted, and therefore we should never eat carbohydrates or grains or you know almost no grains. And now I have my own thoughts on this, but I was wondering if you can relate that to metabolic inflexibility and what you're, whether it's genetic or whether it's environmental. What are your thoughts about that, that people aren't, quote-unquote, carb-adapted, like, through evolution. Do you believe that? Do you think that's generally erroneous? What What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I get a lot of interesting emails from the, the paleo nuts. And it, it, so if you look at it, well, most people, let's say, let's take the average American. We take the average American and we put them on more, let's say, just paleo-type nutrition, so very low carbohydrates or if you want to go with Atkins or whatever, most of them actually will do better, which is good. But if we look at their ability to use carbohydrates, you could argue that a lot of them are almost borderline diabetic. So they don't really have a very good ability to use carbohydrates. If we go back further, so the argument from, you know, like the paleo type people is that you know, genetically, you know, grains haven't been around that long. You can kind of sort of debate that. Um, the way I look at it is the one thing that we definitely do know about humans and we do know about their ability to survive is that they can adapt to almost anything, right? So I look at metabolic flexibility as you want to be as adaptable as possible, you know, and in the end, who who is the person that's going to be most likely to survive? The person who can only eat a limited number of things or the person that can eat just about anything, you know, without any sort of consequences from that. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Uh, that I think you think along the lines I do too. I mean, I think there's some interesting aspects to paleo nutrition. And honestly, the way I eat is, pro oh, you know, probably not that far from it in a lot of ways, but... Uh, also, like you're saying, the human being is so incredibly adaptable. I think aside from our obvious intelligence difference from you know other animals, it's a huge reason I think that we sort of dominate the globe and we're overpopulating the globe. Oh, yeah. You know, and I think like, for example, in sort of even 101 type classes in exercise phys, I'll usually talk about how people often make a choice sort of early on. Are you going to be in aerobic endurance type or are you going to be an explosive strength type? Or do you want to try to be a jack of all trades and a master of none? You know, and I think those kinds of things really illustrate how far you can tweak your metabolism, you know, your, your cell structures and, and things like that to, um, you know, be radically different. So. I don't know. I I I, I got to agree. I mean, I think there's a huge uh, adaptability issue here, and it's not just what you inherited, but the way you live and the way you eat. I think plays a big role. Oh, a huge role. Yeah, especially exercise, which we know. To strength athletes, let's say, what's what's some of the the, the take home messages aside from survivability? You know, I mean. Because let's face it, we can buy fat-rich diets, we can buy carb-rich diets, whatever we want to do. We can, you know, I understand there's definite survivability issues there, but what would be the sort of immediate relevance to strength athletes? If you look at, let's say the average person, right, kind of working in an office all day, and let's say they're, you know, really a hard-training athlete, go home later in the evening, 
you know, do a nice, you know, heavy session, pretty intense work, you know, maybe it's an hour, hour and a half or whatever. And then they go back, you know, relax for a little while, go to bed. So if we, we look at what's been shown countless times called the crossover effect. So it's been known in physiology for quite a while that as the intensity of exercise increases, your body will shift to using more carbohydrates. So we know that, you know, very high intensity can be more carbohydrate-driven, um, very low-intensity type exercise or even rest can be more fat metabolism. So if you have the average strength training person, you know, maybe they have, you know, protein, carbohydrate drink before or after or when they train. But either way, you would want them during their training session because you want to get the maximum amount of output and performance that you can, you would want the, the ability to use carbohydrates at that point. And we know that once you're done training, you know, for example, uh, intervals. Intervals are very high intensity, very metabolically demanding, you know, primarily burning glycogen, the stored form of sugar in the muscles. But as soon as that event is over, you know, it's been referred to as the, the epoch, this sort of afterburn or after effect, that is primarily almost all fat metabolism. So you've stopped exercising at that point, and your body is trying to get back to this sort of homeostasis, so this level line where you kind of want to be, and the repayment of that is actually fat metabolism. So even for a strength athlete, you want the ability to switch from primarily uh, fat maybe training primarily carbs and then back to fat again. You don't really want to be burning a whole bunch of carbs after your training. One, you want a better body composition, right? You want to burn some of that stored fat. And then two, it's just not as efficient. Okay, now let me ask you this. We had Mauro Di Pascali on the show a couple of weeks ago. And, yeah. and And there's a couple of other people who I've heard say this more and more lately that um, – we shouldn't consume carbohydrates during and after exercise because a your body starts switching over to using the carbohydrates and b that it sort of ruins the the improved glucose tolerance you know or the improved insulin sensitivity that you would otherwise get now i have thoughts on this but i want to hear what you have to say about this what do you think about about adding carbohydrates mid and post workout and some of these trends away from that yeah. So if we look at what happens when you take in like a carbohydrate drink, the, the main fuel selector switch in the body is insulin. Now, there's all sorts of other hormones, but if you had to, you know, pluck one out of the air and go, mm, I think this is the main effect, primarily insulin. So we know that when insulin levels are low, primarily burn more body fat. Insulin levels go up, primarily burning more carbohydrates. A little bit of an oversimplification, but it's kind of fair. Mm-hmm. So, my argument is during training, we really want to be high-intensity training. We really want to be burning and using more carbohydrates. So I don't really have a problem with people liking insulin levels, you know, during training. Um, the question I would ask in terms of post-training is, you know, are they overweight? Do they need to lose some weight? You know, when is their next training session? So if they're, you know, kind of overweight, we know their glucose metabolism isn't the best, even after exercise. We know exercise is highly corrective for that. Dumping in a crap load of carbs into that person, probably not the best. But if you have a hard-training athlete and they're saying, hey, I got, you know, two-a-day practice, I've got, you know, skill session in the afternoon, I lift at night, I would say, yeah, and that person, one, they can handle carbohydrates, and two, you would want to try and get their glycogen stores back up as fast as you can because you want that performance at their second session to be that much better. The average person, if they don't train again until the next day, you know, their glycogen stores will be pretty much back to normal anyway, you know, assuming their, their calories are, are sufficient. I think that's one of the points that came up when we were talking with Maro a little is that I do think sometimes the carb thing gets a little overdone. I mean, I was willing to sort of con concede that, you know, you don't need a hundred grams of sugar, you know, immediately after a workout. And like you said, it depends a lot on your body comp and your goals, of course. But we've also had some good talks on, on this show about how, you know, you can't micromanage too much. And if you want to gain weight, 
you've got to really, you know, take it in. And I, I look at the workout, oh, yeah. I would look at the workout period as a real opportunity to do that. The, the hormonal shifts and the blood flow shifts and the kind of things that happen, it does help partition those kinds of nutrients. So if there's a time of a day to do that, I think it would be then. So I think you probably agree with that, especially that, you know, getting some carbs and protein in before you work out and purposely spike your insulin, like you were saying, um, Insulin's a Jekyll and Hyde hormone, and I think listeners kind of know that. It'll indiscriminately build, you know, muscle and fat, sort of both. But, um, you know, you don't, you don't want to have that running wild on you all the time necessarily either. But that's, that kind of brings me to my next point I wanted to ask. So if we wanted to become more flexible in the way we metabolize our two fuels, right? Fats or carbs. Mm -hmm. what do you do training wise? What can you do eating wise to induce certain metabolic pathways? Anything like that? Oh yeah. All sorts of stuff you can do. I mean, the the primary one is obviously exercise, right? We know that if, you know, people that are maybe even borderline diabetic do a hard training exercise session, we measure that, you know, but it's an oral glucose tolerance test usually post-exercise their metabolism of glucose, we know, is much better, primarily through GLUT4 and all that other kind of fun stuff. Um, so that's one thing. Obviously, exercise, you know, makes a huge difference. The other thing, too, which you, you see more and more in, actually, um, people that do long, like, uh, marathon-type training, triathlons, if you look at what they're doing, they're doing a very long training session at moderate intensity. And the kind of the current trend is to always have some type of, you know, glucose coming into the body. We know from studies that that does help, you know, extend exercise performance. The drawback is that these athletes are very used to carbohydrate levels. And uh, Bob Siemenauer calls it sort of metabolic efficiency. It's very similar. And at some point during after maybe two, three hours, if you keep taking in more carbs than you can use, you get a visit from the, the GI distress monster. So you don't really feel all that good, right? Because you're exercising. So all the blood is already being, you know, pulled away from where you want it to be in terms of digestion. So what he does, and he's actually shown some data in his athletes to show that the crossover point actually never even occurs, that these people are so metabolically inflexible that they can shift from fat to carbohydrate metabolism. They stay at almost all carbohydrate metabolism. So one of the things he does, which I definitely agree with, is he actually starts pulling carbohydrates out of their diet and inserting more fats and more proteins. And what will happen then is the body will shift to burning more fat. And if you're doing a, a moderate intensity but very long duration, that's exactly what you'd want. You want to be able to do a, you know, pretty good work and use body fat as the primary uh, source for that. Does that kind of make a little bit of sense? Yeah. Honestly, it sort of provides a, a mechanism for something that I've been going on for a long time about, which is my best way, and I plan to do this again when I try to lean out um, this year for competition season, but is doing sort of the long, steady, fasted cardio, you know, sort of moderate, moderate pace and get d direct fat oxidation but then when I'm done with my weight training sessions, I'll do, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, bike sprints or something like that or treadmill sprints uphill, just five or five to ten, you know, all outs kind of. And my hope then is I generate lots of mitochondria or, you know, at least some with some of the interval work. And then I put all that kind of fat burning machinery to use during those long, steady sessions, you know, in which I'm I'm encouraging fat specific burning anyway, you know, so. I think it's cool to try to keep those kinds of things in mind that when people want to get big and lean, you know, there's times to stress different systems, whether it's nutritionally or, you know, exercise wise. So anyway, I think it's cool just to provide, you know, some of those mechanisms that because what just let me reiterate for listeners, what you're saying then is you can, in fact, in not just in your lifetime, but in the next couple of months, train yourself to become more metabolically flexible, to become better at fat burning or better at carb burning. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Bob showed some some data at the last ISSN that showed um, these are pretty, you know, hard training, more elite type athletes, aerobic, that it was three to four weeks 
sometimes six to eight weeks. Um, yep. So it's, when it's done correctly, it's really not that long of a, a period of time to see a pretty um, substantial benefit. And like you were saying with the, the long duration, more cardio stuff too, is you're obviously doing very heavy, intense weight training sessions too, probably pretty frequently. So there's only so much that your body, both structurally and via the nervous system, can support of that too. You know, so you, you probably need to add just basically more activity at some point. You know, there's only so many more sprints you can do, but you can always add, you know, very sort of long-duration, low-intensity work for, you know, whatever you need to sort of make up the difference. Right, yeah. And and not have to worry about overtraining and, and that kind of thing because it's hardly even a an exercise stressor really on the body, you know, because it's so moderate. Yeah, and if you look at the, the nervous system, that lower intensity work is actually helping the parasympathetic nervous system, so sort of mm-hmm. like the rest and digest branch. You know, obviously more weight training and, you know, especially sprints are more sympathetic dominant. So probably, you know, balancing it out is going to be a good thing in terms of being able to keep up pretty high, you know, work output for a long duration. Right. Well, so, I mean, I got that from you, Lonnie, and used it a ton myself. And I think just for for big guys, at least, um, somebody carrying out a lot of a lot of muscle, a lot of weight, just the simple act of walking. Oh it's yeah, a big cool thing move. for your body count. I mean, and it's it's the type of walking I try to get people to. Do. It's like don't go out there with a goal to like push yourself real hard. Just go enjoy a freaking walk for thirty to sixty minutes, and you know, do that for a month, and you'll see some changes. I have actually seen people lose, just not weight trainers necessarily, because I know when Graham Cook was on, he was talking about how this is very effective with weight trainers, but I've even seen non-weight trainer people, I mean, I really don't underestimate walking, um, because the body is meant to do it basically all day long. If you think about evolution, how people were, you know, before we settled down into cities and towns, you know, let's say 40,000 years ago or something, I mean, I think people walked constantly. I think the body's meant to do that. And I've seen some pretty amazing stuff. I've seen very average people lose 20, 30 pounds over the course of a year just going on walks before they have breakfast and that kind of thing. And so is that going to happen with everybody? No, it's probably not going to happen with everybody. But I do think it's a, a cool way to control uh, body fat and body comp. And I know Fortress has done that a little bit too with even during bulking phases because, it, you know, again, it's not really taxing muscle glycogen. Like Mike said, it's not jacking your sympathetic nervous system. It's not driving up adrenaline or anything like that. It's a fat-specific calorie drain. And I think it's even a good idea to, to consider that when, you're, when you are, quote-unquote, bulking up. Because then, you know, in the morning, you, you, know, you burn a little fat before breakfast, but then you can have your big meal. You can have your you know, nutrient um, rush before, during, and after training and all that kind of stuff. But over the course of the 24-hour period, you know, fat balance – uh, is sort of addressed, and you know I think that's just a really neat way to go about it. I mean, you could diet with that, or you could even try to keep body fat under control while you're bulking with that. You know, it's just kind of a neat idea. So, okay, so uh, let me ask you this, Mike: metabolic inflexibility, or let's say metabolic flexibility. Let's flip that around. If we want to be metabolically flexible, because I think we've established that you can become more metabolically flexible depending on your macronutrient choices and the way you train. So, again, let's not overdwell most listeners. If you're listening to a lot of stuff about how you should never eat any grains and you should, you know, because we're, none of us are carb-adapted, I'm sure that Mike and I can supply lots of information that you can, in fact, induce different me- metabolic pathways. You can become a better fat-burning machine and things like that, or a carbo- better carbohydrate-using machine. Uh, so... They can be done. Don't think that you're just unable to use carbohydrates and just throw in the towel because I, I think carbs are grossly over-consumed and a lot of grains and, and sugars are over-consumed, that's for sure. But I do think you know there's a ton of research. It's really not even up for much debate that you can't alter your metabolism to become better at it. But what I want to ask you, Mike, is how does this affect you or the way you eat or train personally? Do you actually – program anything different or do you eat differently trying to stay metabolically flexible um yeah that's a good question so how i think of it is so if you work with clients the client comes in and you know let's say they're very not very metabolically flexible they don't exercise a lot and they you know charles would probably say this stuff you know the cheese doodle dust on their fingers type thing 
So they come in and you say, hey, uh, we'll fix this, no problem. You're going to eat, you know, broccoli and chicken every meal. You'll drop weight. It's going to be, you know, great. Um, they're probably going to leave, and you'll probably never talk to them again because they're thinking yeah. that this is going to happen for the rest of their life. They're like, well, screw this. This is horrible. I'm never doing anything. Back to the couch, you know, give me my cheese little bag again. So what I tell people is that there's a spectrum between sort of good and bad eating. You can discuss good versus bad foods later. But your goal is, let's say, body composition. So, yeah, you probably will have to clean up your nutrition, you know, eat less processed foods. You're probably a little bit hard time working with carbohydrates. You'll probably have to pull those out for a period of time. And let's say you get up to 90% compliance, you know, with whatever the food plan we set up. But your goal, once you actually reach your goal, they say, all right, I, re- I reached my body composition goal, assuming it's done in an intelligent manner. Your goal at that point is actually to go backwards the other way, is to see how much you can maintain that eating as bad as you possibly can. And bad is all, again, relative. Because you've, you've met your goal, let's say it took you 90% compliance to get to it, then let's try maybe 80%. 70%, maybe 60%. You know, maybe we find out that only 60% of your meals have to be, you know, broccoli and chicken-esque. You know, you can tolerate a wide variety of other types of foods. Your health markers in terms of, you know, say blood chemistry or whatever is fine. Body composition is fine. You can argue all day about, you know, long-term effects and how this may be affecting your body or may not. But in my opinion, that's perfectly up to the client to decide. You know, but I, I think the common wisdom is that, okay, you, you reach 90% compliance, but you just got to keep doing that the rest of your life. Mm, probably not. So I think it's a little bit more motivating up front to say that, okay, once you reach your goal, at that point we're going to see how much you can actually get away with, you know, with your nutrition and still stay where you want to be. So I think that's a little bit of a different approach. Yeah, I think that's a neat idea. So what you're sort of saying is go hardcore – you know, for a realistic period of time, I don't know, two, three months, whatever it might be, reach a goal and then try to figure out the sweet spot, right, about how much carbs you need to actually reduce or how much fat maybe that you need to reduce or something like that. But you don't have to live in that uh, Spartan way forever. Oh, no. And, I mean, you can even get fancier and, and do it while they're trying to get to their goal. You know, again, depending on the, you know, the athlete and the client and that type of thing, you know, the the goal is to get to the goal with the, the minimal uh, effective amount, not the maximal. We all know that if you follow a good plan, you follow it at 100% compliance, yeah, you'll get there. Um, even John Brardy has said, you know, 90% compliance, he doesn't see any difference between 90% compliance and 100% compliance. So maybe they could get there 80%, maybe right. 70%. Maybe it takes them a couple of weeks longer at 80%, but they can do that consistently instead of this sort of on the bandwagon, oh, I, I fell off and devoured the old country buffet for three days in a row. Okay, I'll try again now. You know, there's the, the whole thing of when you, um, when you take away control from people, oh, bad stuff happens. <laughs> and I think that, that, uh, that, that's that one of the reminds me of Dave Tate's deal where he talks about blast and dust. You know, yeah. where the last two yeah. years he's been going from like 220 to 320. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, it's the same thing because, you know, for him it's, and, and people are very much the same way. It's, it's on and off. You know, I'm either 100% on and, you know, geez, I'm doing it and it's great. It works great. Okay, now I'm done. Oops, now I'm, now I'm nothing. Right? So he's <laughs> not used to operating in 80%, 90%, 70%. And a lot of that is, and my personal bias is I, I think it's a mental shift. Because when you're 100% on, let's say you, you hire someone, you're doing everything they tell you, you have, in essence, given up all control to them. Say, here, you know what, let's figure it out. Whatever you say, I'm doing it for the next four months. Woo-hoo! And then when you're done, you're like, oops, now it's under my control again. I have to make my own decisions. What do I do? I've never done this before. And they go completely back to what they did before. So there's just no... No intermediate ground. Yeah. You know, what you're describing there is something that I used to go on about, which there are 
target date diets, and I think everybody needs to think about, you know, what their goals are, but if you have a target date diet, like for me, you know, it's going to start in December, God help me, but go for about four months and I have a very target date specific body comp goal that's fairly extreme. You know, but on the flip side, there's sort of what I would call eating for the long haul or dieting for the long haul. And I, I don't like when people use the word diet synonymous with restriction because a di the diet just signifies what you eat. It's not necessarily yeah. you know, restrictive. But I, and then that falls into the category I think you're talking about. Like there is way to make progress or certainly maintain a lean physique on some level by going with that 60, 70%, you know, by just picking three or four things that seem to work really well for you and just trying to make those habitual, you know, again, for the long haul. But nobody, like you said, has to live on, um, you know, green beans and broccoli and, and skinless, boneless chicken breasts forever because, you know, that's not uh, behaviorally possible, really, right? Yeah, it's you always have to separate and. You know, because you look at metabolic studies, right, where they, they lock someone in a metabolic chamber and they measure all this stuff. And that's really cool from a scientific standpoint. It's fascinating. But you can't compare that situation to, you know, someone in a free-living condition either. You know, they're completely, completely different. And I think a lot of times when we look at studies, we want to take everything that we learn from, you know, the metabolic ward studies and go, oh, this was great. Here, do this 100%. And then in the real world, it just doesn't work. I think that's a good point is for, for, you know, young guys who are listening or really anybody who's listening is a metabolic ward study. It's important because it points to a mechanism, oh, yeah. you know, it, it's so I don't want anybody to think, you know, science isn't important. It's critically important. But like Mike is saying, there are so many other variables in a free living person that you could see a significant difference uh, in a metabolic ward study where everything that goes in their mouth is measured, everything that comes out of their backside is measured. I mean, everything is detailed and logged. You know, they live in a very controlled physical activity and emotional stress environment with sleep cycles controlled and everything else. You might see a 10 or 15% difference there that becomes statistically significant, but you take that into a free living situation and now you've got you know, arguments with your girlfriend or you've got bills to pay or, you know, you don't get your eight hours of sleep one night or, you know, for a social or business reason, you go have a bunch of um, alcohol or a giant meal. So all of a sudden, a lot of this stuff just throws a monkey wrench into the controlled studies. You still need the controlled studies to get a mechanism. But yeah, like Mike's saying, Wow, you know, there's a lot of other things going on. And I think that's why a few weeks ago, we're at Fortress and Phil and I were talking about how just getting a really aggressive toward a goal um, is the way to do it. You know, and your body comp hopefully will, you know, correct and regulate over time. But you can't expect to say, I'm going to eat 150 extra calories a day or I'm going to cut 13.5 grams of carbohydrates or fats out of my diet or this or that meal because that's that's hogwash right that's those are minuscule differences that in the scheme of things in a free living person are squat yeah i i, I totally agree and that's the one thing i like about the metabolic flexibility is that it, your whole goal is to be as flexible to whatever foods you want to eat as possible and it's up to you to figure out like you said what is your goal and then what sort of quote-unquote side effects you know, you want to tolerate from it, you know, yeah. but you should have at least be presented with a plan or something that allows you the flexibility to do it and not say, okay, it's the way it has to be, you know, 100%. Uh, yeah. So, Mike, what do you think about time of day, like micro-periodizing your macronutrients? I mean, we talked about that a little, like, you know, carbs and spiking insulin, um, you know, during anabolic times of the day or reducing insulin during you know, fat burning times of the day, whatever it is. But what about like mesocycle type things? Do you have uh, any uh, instructions or even just thoughts for listeners about, you know, should I drop carbs for a, a several week period, you know, and then I do a carb refeed or, you know, anything cyclical like that that you would recommend? Or do you think it's just something that you would do within a given day? Oh, yeah. Um, I actually remember reading your early stuff on T-Muscle on temporal nutrition like years ago. I was like, oh, wow, that's so cool. Um, and, there, you know, there is some studies showing that, you know, insulin sensitivity will vary, you know, throughout the day, and especially if you include training, you know, in that. 
the funny part is, I'm sure you know, Lonnie, if you if you look at actual insulin and glucose numbers from real patients, holy crap, do they vary just widely. I mean, even within a few minutes of each other. So there's a fair amount of variability there, too. So my goal, actually, is if someone's very metabolically flexible, I don't really think any of that stuff should matter a whole lot, right? If you take in carbohydrates, your body goes, oh, insulin levels went up, woo, time to use carbohydrates. Oop, not as much food coming in, for example, in a very, like, say, a fasted condition. So you're fasting maybe for 24 hours. Very cool study that they took uh, metabolically flexible and metabolically inflexible people under a fasting condition, and they showed that during that time period, the people who were metabolically inflexible actually became more metabolically flexible. So there's no food coming in. Insulin levels are very, very low. There's no food coming in. And if you think from a survival standpoint, yeah, you have some stored glycogen, but you really have to be able to use body fat for fuel at that point. You're not going to be around very long. So maybe, you know, a 24-hour fast may be a way to trick the body into becoming more metabolically flexible. So what I have people do is as they get better, I actually have them test what appears to be all sorts of weird stuff. So the whole goal would be just kind of eat what you want and your body will react to it. So, you know, if they have like a a high-carbohydrate drink in the afternoon, they seem to be okay with that. Oh, that's good. If it's one in the morning, they're still good. In the evening, they're still good. Oh, I view that as a, a good sign. You know, if they have one in the afternoon and then, you know, 30 minutes later, they, they feel like they're going to fall asleep on their keyboard, not a good sign. You know, so I I view, and you can get, you know, very specifics of that if you want on an individual level. But at the base level, you really want to teach the body to be as adaptable as possible. So I sometimes think that, having everything be, you know, exactly two hours I eat this. And 2.125 minutes I had, you know, 23.8 grams of protein. You know, and you can drive yourself, like you said, bonkers doing that. And I don't really think it's probably even that healthy. You know, I think that adaptability and actually variability responding well to those conditions, I actually think that is a marker for health or metabolic flexibility. Right. It sounds like you've come to a lot of the similar conclusions. I'll even explain to students in classes that diet-wise, you know, it's just like training. You can look at diet the way you look at training. What are some of the training principles? One is, you know, variety. Um, Another is specificity of adaptations. You know, these are the same things that happen when you eat. And I don't know why that should surprise anybody. They're both physical stimuli, you know, what you put in your mouth versus what you hold in your hands. And, you know, so you do want uh, some sense of variety, like you said, just like being, uh, I mean, the most fit people by the classic definition would really be sort of be the cross trainer guys. You know, they have aerobic ability. They have a fair amount of strength and flexibility. Their body comp is quite good. They might be jack of all trades, master of none, but by classic definition, they are the most fit. And I think what you're saying is the, the most uh, metabolically flexible person would sort of be the cross trainer of the dietary world, right? They can, they can do several things, or at least, in this case, at least two things very well. They can, they can handle carbs well. They can handle fats well when it calls for it. And, you know, let me give you an example of this. I was, um, doing a classic, you know, fasting, uh, RER study, you know, well, not study, but a, just a lab with some students last year. And normally, you know, the idea is to illustrate that they're burning almost entirely fat after a long fast. And then when they eat something like white bread, they very quickly shift over to carbohydrate use. Like you were saying, Mike, you know, insulin, you know, spikes and all of a sudden they start relying on glycolysis and and carbohydrates. And But interestingly, she was overweight. She was quite overweight and she was very metabolically inflexible. I, I, I'm almost sure if I would have done a blood draw, she would have had elevated, you know, fa- fasting insulin. Um, because even in a many hour fasted state on the metabolic cart, she was burning probably at best about a 50 50 mix of fats and carbs. Yeah. Whereas you would expect most young people to be burning, you know, 
maybe 80% fat or maybe even more depending if they had overnight fast and that kind of thing, you know. So very interesting that she really, I think because she had high background insulin and she wasn't physically active and she had a lot of body fat, you know, she just, she was always burning carbohydrates and she was just not touching fat, you know, as a fuel. So you can see that in people, you know, this is stuff that you can see in a fairly, you know, straightforward, just kind of lay setting, really. Yeah, and that's one of the, a little bit of a side tangent. One of the things that we're trying to do, which we have, perfectly honest, haven't had a whole lot of luck, is like you were saying, the, the RER. So that, you know, for people who don't know, you're hooked up to a metabolic heart, and the newer ones will measure it in every breath. And they'll tell you this percentage of fats were burned, this percentage of carbohydrates were burned. So our theory was, based on um, George Biltz I worked with here at the U of M, is that the variability in a breath-by-breath basis of that may be a marker for metabolic flexibility. So even if you're under a fasting condition, at some level, your body is going to still oscillate a little bit between, oh, I'm a little bit more fat burning here, a little bit more carbohydrate, and this, you know, variability, like what we see in heart rate, is actually good. It's actually a marker for health. So we were trying to see that if we can apply some math to the RER um, ratio under low-intensity exercise, if that may indicate or may be a way to differentiate in a lab setting people who are metabolically flexible and people who are metabolically inflexible. Um, We have some pilot data that shows that may be true, some other data that's a little bit possibly conflicting. Um, But the nice part is that that may be a way, if it works out, to have a non-invasive way to actually measure it. So if someone comes in and says, okay, my goal is you know, fat loss, and we say, oh, we think metabolic flexibility is the way to go, we could measure them with just a standard metabolic cart, which you can get in health clubs now, run the analysis and say, okay, you've been exercising for four weeks now. Yeah, you only dropped a couple pounds of fat, but oh, look, your body is adapting. It's becoming more metabolically flexible according to this test, and that's be cool. a positive thing. So you could yeah. show one that there's a change. They are moving closer to, you know, a state of health. Um, now the only way to measure metabolic flexibility to get lab numbers is, you know, an insulin clamp study. So start yeah. an IV in one arm, start an IV in the other arm, you know, pour in a bunch of insulin, pour in a bunch of glucose, and you know, kind of watch them for a couple hours. And it works, but very few places will do it. Very invasive, not a lot of fun. For the best sports nutrition information on the planet, make plans to attend the 8th Annual ISSN Conference and Expo, June 23rd to 25th, 2011, at the Westin Las Vegas Hotel, Casino, and Spa. We'll have the latest on creatine, beta-alanine, protein, nutrient timing, and much, much more. So, for more information, go to www.theissn.org. Right. I think it'd be awesome to come up with some practical tests, uh... Really, the only practical things I can think of is one thing you already mentioned, which which is, um, you know, do I get you know a massive food coma? Like I'll give an example: yeah. morning time when insulin you know is really ready to flow. If I have a giant bowl of Lucky Charms, which I love to do, but you know I can't do it very often, yeah. between the milk and, the, and all the sugar, my insulin spikes so hard. Within an hour, if I'm not physically active during that time, I'm I just shut down. I almost pass out. You know, in fact, sometimes I do nap. <laughs> like if I need to relax, I'll do that on purpose. But so it's it's interesting how you know you can see that. So if you have symptoms like that, that might suggest you know that you're not the best carbohydrate metabolizer. By the way, there's type two diabetes in my family too, so I probably have some of the multiple genes that might lead to that kind of condition. But also, um, oh, I lost my train of thought. But um, oh, family history. Uh, so, and that's something that, you know, dietitians will even do is they'll sort of ask about your family history of diabetes and things like that. Because even if you're not diabetic yourself, if you have a close relative who's type 2 diabetic or has metabolic syndrome, you may also have some of those, gene, those genes where you, you might not be diabetic, but you might be a fairly poor carbohydrate handler. So looking at your family history to get a hint about your genetics or, you know, looking at personal symptoms, you know, like too many carbs makes me tired, not enough tire, uh, carbs make me also makes me fatigued, you know, you, you have to sort of ballpark that until we can get better identifying which genes, you know, lead to 
poor carbohydrate handling. And not just that, but like Mike is saying, a practical test to actually see if you are metabolically inflexible, in this case, a poor carb handler, right? So, I mean, a grad student sent me some research recently about doing, um, you know, cheek swabs inside your mouth and actually they're starting to identify certain genes where some people, they have certain genes, they do better on low carbohydrate diets, you know, versus people who don't have those genes might do better on a low fat diet and that kind of stuff. So it's neat to look at this kind of stuff, but just to reiterate, there's really no practical test right now. That's the kind of thing you're working on in the lab, right? Yeah, I mean, there's some stuff that I, you know, I can't obviously say that there's hard data behind, um, like the fasting I mentioned. If people, in my opinion, can't do a 24-hour fast without feeling like they're going to die or crash or their performance in gym is horrible, then I would say, well, they probably have an inability to use body fat um, or fats in general. Uh, the reverse, exactly what you said. If I mean, I even have people test, you know, what's your, your favorite food, and you know, Captain Crunch. All right. Have that for, you know, breakfast and let me know how you feel a couple hours later. Oh, I feel fine. Good. Oh, man, not good. <laughs> you know, yeah. so they can do their own personal tests that way, and this really freaks people out. But once they get good at that, then you can just keep pushing the spectrum. So I got one guy who's, you know, testing bags of ramen noodles. Like, well, what food is going to be around, like, you know, forever that's, you know, maybe not even borderline food? Ooh, ramen noodles. Oh. Huh. Can I use those and turn them into fuel? Well, wasn't too bad. Now, that's not saying that you're going to spend your whole life eating the ramen noodle diet, you know, but it's, you know, you can take it as as far as you want to go with it, you know. Before we're done, I want to ask uh, Fortress and and you too, Phil, do you purposely manipulate carbs and fats ever? I mean, I'm not talking about counting grams, but do you try to eat more carbs when you're gaining weight or you try to eat more fats or do you just do both and let your body sort of figure it out? What about you, Fortress? Are you here? Yeah, I uh, I don't know. My eating is pretty kamikaze, really. I mean, I lately, as you guys know, I've been trying to eat a lot more calories. But, I mean, as far as like on days where I don't feel like eating at all, um, I will eat only two or three meals, but I mean, I'm, I would say four, four or five days a week, I'll just eat lately as much as I can. As far as you know, breaking down how much the cal- the, the carbohydrate kind of factors into the ratio of that, I, I don't really pay much attention to it. Um, certainly, if I'm feeling kind of stringy or strung out from training out from training, I'll uh, you know purposely try and maybe eat some more starchy type carbohydrates or something like that that usually help me make me feel better. Or, Certainly, if I eat something like that, like a big uh, starchy meal a couple of days before a heavy training session, that seems to make a big difference for me, too. So, um, yeah, I, I, I kind of... Sorry? Pizza, or what are you doing for, this, for the starchy meals? Yeah. Um, I always found that to be a good... good. But to me, it works usually two days before the heavy training session as opposed to day, the day before. Um, just increase my fluid intake, and then, yeah, like something like a pizza with, like, tons of water, something with a lot of sodium, starchy stuff. Uh, you know, usually helps me a, lot, a great deal. I've I've kind of changed my focus late in the last year or so into really kind of focusing on what I eat the day day or two before I train, as opposed to yeah. you know immediately after. Immediately after, I just try and is eat as much as I can in general. Um, but I'm not nearly as scientific as probably you guys are with a lot of that stuff. So, right. So carbs and fats, and so you go for the carbs when you're feeling depleted. So you you feel like you're a little small, a little flat, a little fatigued. Then it's time to take in a, a large pizza. I bump it up usually two or three days. Everything's fine again. Yeah. I mean, nope. it's been pretty interesting because it's kind of something, I mean, that I've been doing anyways, and now you're just leading. You're, you're putting more wood on my fire to do it more. But um, <laughs> times like now where I'm, I'm making that push to get back up to 280 and this and that, I'm just eating a lot of food. Um, it's just whatever I can handle to put in my mouth. Um, I tend to lean towards, you know, fattier cuts of meat, this and that. I know I do well on it. And then I just add in a bunch of carbs. Um, but there's usually a time once a year, maybe once every other year, usually once a year, where I'll take 30 to 60 days and I'll go on like a PLCD, um, uh, Mario DiBasquale type anabolic diet, something like that. And my reasoning was, hey, I'm going to go ahead and fix my insulin sensitivity. You know, and I'll just, I'll still eat a ton, but I'll just go extremely low carb and, uh, <laughs> It's always seemed to help. I mean, it might lean me out a little bit, but like I said, I usually try to maintain weight during it. And but I notice when I come off that 
you know, I'll, I'll take a protein drink before I work out, and it's like I just took crack or something. It's like, woo, you know, I'm ready to train. <laughs> yeah. and I'll, I'll, that'll stick with me for a while, you know, and it's like I've, I've, I've made that adjustment after a month or two months, whatever I decide to do it on, and uh, and then I mess around. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll like like Rob, I very much in the last two years, I've paid much more attention to what I eat before, much more so than what I eat after um, training. I mean, it's I always have at least a day, maybe two, before my next training cycle. So what I eat right after really doesn't matter that much because I'm going to, you know, I don't need to load up on carbohydrates after. Uh, I know I'm going to get them in before that 24 hours is over. Right. Um, so I usually, if I'm going to load up carbohydrates, usually it's in the hours before or day before. Um, yeah. And that's where I found the most benefit was actually, you know, if you want something in your blood and you want it in your muscles, have it in there before you go use them. Um <laughs> Yeah, no, you know what? Let me add this quickly. I mean, if if you look at the research, it's it's crystal clear. This is not going to win any Nobel prizes. Uh, we've known for a long time that muscles like to use their in-house stored glycogen, right? Blood sugar, stuff that's hitting your blood right now as you're exercising, muscles will take up maybe ten to fifteen percent of the carbohydrates that they're they're using from the blood. The rest is from glycogen that you already stored earlier in the day or the day before or two days before. So that's an interesting point. I think you're right on the money with that, Phil, that muscles, they like to use in-house already pre-stored glycogen. And you can stretch that out by consuming carbs and sports drinks and stuff during a session. But yeah, it, that in-house glycogen is really critical. My clients that I've worked with and been working with lately is I really have them eat before because, I mean, as you guys all know, what happens during the training session is, is pretty minuscule. But if I'm able to give you, you know, a lot of people talk about fasted workouts, this and that, and they go in, they have a half-ass workout because they're starving and haven't eaten before and this and that, um, and but they're worried about only eating a little bit so they can burn that off before the, during the workout. It's like, well, why not just go ahead and eat, have a great workout, and then for the next 24, 48 hours, then you're going to be burning a ton. By giving yourself by eating afterburn, right? Yeah, post exercise, you know, extra yeah metabolism there. That's a real thing, and honestly, I think that's why we all get away with what we do. With you know, like I'll eat more carbs this time of year. Again, I know my body's not really digging on the carb thing that much, but in a weight gain situation, I do want some of that extra insulin. I do want the extra glycogen swelling my muscles and stuff. Um, You know, so. I don't know. I, I I get away with that in part, and I think you guys do too. With just whether it's fats and carbs or both, is because if a weight training session is brutal, even if it's just forty five minutes long, you're going to be sore. You're going to have a ten or maybe fifteen percent elevated metabolism for the next twenty four hours, probably at least. You know what I mean? So you're burning calories all the time, and or, or like uh, like Mike was saying, you know, a lot of those calories that you're burning afterwards are in fact fat calories. So brutal sessions linger. I think that's one of the big differences between brutal resistance training sessions and let's say long runs in someone who's a runner. If you're an adapted runner, you know, you're really good at it. Um, a lot of what's happening, I think is happening during the workout. Some of it's happening afterward, but if you're not, you know, real high intensity and you're not brutalizing your tissues, you know, the session itself is really important. But for weight training, the, the session itself, you might burn, what, 250 calories? I mean, you might go through maybe a third of your glycogen, you know, because you're doing low, fairly low rep stuff, you know, five sets of five or something. So the session itself doesn't become a, as much of a huge issue as it sets the stage for the next 24 hours or something. You know, your metabolism is utterly different, I think. So just some c- compare and contrast there. Okay, Mike. So... Any other thoughts? I mean, what about you? Are you um, how are you eating right now? Let's let's just do one more thing and then we'll call it a day. How are you eating right now? Do you purposely eat carbs and fats and just try to stay as diverse dietarily as you are? Um, pretty much, yeah. What um, what I've been doing is I played around with some fasting stuff. Um, so lately, since I've been trying to drop a little bit of weight, I'll do like one twenty-four hour fast a week, and then. <laughs> For better or worse, I've been trying to see how much I can actually get away with <laughs> um, because okay. my schedule's been a little bit insane. So, and after a while, what you find is that 
your body will kind of give you all sorts of signs, right? So in my case, I found that if I really cut back on fruits and vegetables quite a bit, um, I started getting very slight uh, joint pain. As soon as I added more fruits and veggies, like literally within like a day, well, joint pain kind of went away. Um, so, I mean, different things like that. Different markers will be, you know, different for each person. Um, ironically, I've been writing up a study on energy drinks. So for part of my sort of distress testing for metabolic flexibility on myself, I would have an energy drink like Monster in the afternoon just to see, you know, would I feel great for an hour and then collapse or would I be okay? What I found was I'm usually pretty good, where in the past, if I've done that kind of stuff, I it was much more extreme. You know, I'd feel great for an hour and then, you know, after that it was like, well, I might as well take a nap for 45 minutes to an hour because I was worthless. Um, and anecdotally, one of the clients I worked with, he had a very specific type of protein bar that he couldn't eat. Um, and he was also burping fish oil like crazy. So we, you know, did some stuff with his training, you know, did a few different things. Uh, four weeks later, exact same fish oil, same bottle, same everything. No weird fish burps. Uh, made the same protein bars actually from the same container. Um, no digestion issues either. So mm. it's something that you can probably modify relatively fast. And again, like you said, there's always going to be certain things. So, for example, my wife is is very intolerant to gluten, um, but she's actually gotten a little bit more tolerant of it lately. Now, she doesn't have, she's not a celiac or anything like that. It's just more of an intolerance. So I think with a lot of intolerance issues, there may be more that you can kind of do to, to make them not as severe, too. You know, an intolerance is just something that your body really can't handle at all, and if it keeps continuing, you know, you can end up with, you know, full-blown allergies and that kind of stuff, too. Um, so, something to think about. Okay. Before I let everybody go, I want to make a quick announcement about the Iron Radio contest. We're currently running um, the most interesting contest in the world, and this is on our Facebook page, Iron Radio listeners page. Um and I'll just read this to you straight from the page. It says, as Iron Radio listeners, we know that you're so interesting. Other men must resist the urge to thank you when you punch them in the face. But how do you lift in the gym? So now through the end of October, we're going to have you call in and tell us about machines or movements that you like to use in the gym. Something that's not typical barbell. Uh, we had an episode about this just a couple of weeks ago to kick it off. So if there are machines you really like... Um, or different kinds of movements that just hit the sweet spot and you love that stuff, even though it's not a squat or a bench press, you know, or a deadlift. Um, don't be ashamed. Send us an email. Send us a voicemail. You can call the Iron Radio hotline. It's 206 203 3798. I just got a shipment of some sweet mugs. I've got some very sweet uh, nutrition textbooks, as I often do. And I will simply send them to you. If you don't believe this happens, again, check out the Iron Radio listeners page on Facebook, and you'll see people on there going, wow, they sent me my stuff. Yes, we did. Giveaways are part of what we do. I mean, I'm giving away education with these books. Even the mugs are vaguely educational, depending on what's on them. So 206-203-3798. Send us a voicemail, preferably, but an email would be fine, too. You can do that through the ironradio.org page. The most interesting contest in the world. Tell us about, you know, your guilty pleasures with different machines. Okay. Is that, I think that that's a wrap. Hey, the only other thing I had too is that the people want to get a special report that I have, they can just go to www.miketnelson.com and then it's just forward slash metflex, M-E-T-F-L-E-X. Just enter your email there and I'll send them out a cool little report and they can get more information there. Okay, and closing comment, we're going to ask Mike to start giving us some nutrition news. He's really good. He's got his fingers on the pulse of this stuff, I'm telling you. And, Mike, don't forget to add you know, links to your blog and your page when you do that, too, and then we can start ins- inserting some of this nutrition news into the show. Cool. cool. Sweet. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Hey, Iron Radio listeners, this is John Mike. I just wanted to tell you about the American Society of Exercise Physiologists is pleased to announce the 2011 National Meeting on September 22nd, 23rd, and 24th in Albuquerque, New Mexico. 
This will actually be the fourth time the National Conference has been held here in Albuquerque. This three-day event will be held at the Radisson Hotel and Water Park, New Mexico Sports and Wellness, and the University of New Mexico, and partly hosted by the Exercise Science Program here at the University of New Mexico. Go to www.ascp.org to learn more about this exciting conference. Thanks so much. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like Iron Radio, if you like what we do, uh, the education, interviewing uh, industry personalities, or many of the pro bodybuilders or coaches that we've had in the past, uh, please just click on the donate button at www.ironradio.org and make a donation. We've had some great donations from people that have kept us going. Thank you so much. Uh, so please visit uh, the website, click on the donation button, or if you like, uh, and it's a similar situation, buy some Iron Radio cool stuff. We've got t-shirts and mugs and things like that, and those things help support the site and keep us on the air. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.